All right, third John, or some would say three John. Look with me, if you will, please, in just a couple of verses this evening that we'll be reading from this passage, um, verses 9 and 10. So, verses 9 and 10 of third John. John says, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, pratting against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. As we previously discovered in our study thus far in Third John, the emphasis of John's greeting to Gaius in this short epistle uh, concerning his prayer for his, John's prayer for Gaius' well-being was based upon John's desire that Gaius might continue in being a fellow helper to the truth. This is key to this entire epistle. Uh, we saw, of course, First uh, John is so rich, as you remember, in its, in its teaching concerning um, the fellowship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ, fellowship we have in truth and in love, of course, in Christ, and how he gives us the specifically eight tests that can be categorized at least concerning evidences of one who is in the faith or in genuine fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you come to 2 John, and 2 and 3 John are referred to as twin epistles by many, and they both are relatively short in nature, especially compared to five chapters in 1 John. And also, they are twin, referred to as twins because of the similarities in the nature. And both first, or 2 and 3 John... Uh, John somewhat summarizes the teaching of 1 John in both of these short epistles. And we've seen the similarities before in the verses where John, of course, in verse 4 of each uh, 2nd and 3rd John, he speaks about how he had great joy because they were walking in truth and to hear that their children walked in truth. And, of course, 2nd uh, John, John deals greatly with love and truth. And in that passage, if you recall in 2 John, uh, whether this is a specific uh, woman, a lady who's actually a redeemed, born-again believer, or whether John is referencing a church, we don't know for certain. There's different views and schools of thought concerning that. But in 1 John, we know it's a general epistle written, written not to a specific church, but to believers in general during John's day. And remember, he spoke of the Antichrist that were present. And of course, those who were uh, who claimed that they knew God, claimed that they loved God, claimed that they had God, but yet they rejected Jesus Christ. And in John's day, of course, this would be the Jews. They were the ones who claimed to have fellowship with God, yet rejected Jesus Christ. Therefore, to reject Christ is to not know God at all and to not have the Father at all, because you, because you can't have one without the other. And so uh, John deals in that and addresses that concerning those who are in genuine fellowship with the Lord through Jesus Christ in the first epistle. Then in the second epistle, he deals greatly with love and truth. And, he, and both of these are very important. And John warns the elect lady and her children concerning those who would come in with an attempt to deceive and distract from Jesus Christ, distract from the truth, and draw them away. And he tells them not to, we'll look at this in a moment again, but not even to have bid them uh, Godspeed, if you will, because to do so is then to partake of their error and their heresy um, as they would proclaim another Christ, another gospel, if you will, as Paul deals with in Galatians as well. And so in this third epistle, we see that the emphasis is that of 
John exhorting and commending Gaius for being a fellow helper to the truth. And we've spent some time already looking into what that means. And, and so we continue uh, this study tonight. Last week we considered John's statement in verses 7 and 8 in light of John's commendation in verses 5 and 6. So let's read 5 through 8 together. Beloved, thou doest faithfully, speaking to Gaius specifically, whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. So John here again is saying those who are that you know who are the brethren and those who are strangers who are commended unto you, recommended specifically. And it was, it's not uncommon to go through the scriptures and find where believers would recommend other believers to the church, especially when you had so many people infiltrating the church or attempting to and, and, and to bring error into the church and heresy into the church. And so Paul gave recommendations, other gave recommendations of brothers who would come or sisters as well coming into the body and saying, receive them. Even Onesimus, as you recall with Philemon and Onesimus who had done Philemon wrong and Paul writing this letter with his own hand, he claims, and he says that receive Onesimus as myself. And so he's saying, treat Onesimus as you would treat me as a brother and as apostle. He says, treat Onesimus in the same manner. And so that was, again, was a letter of recommendation concerning our commendation concerning um, Onesimus. And so you see that this is what is being stated uh, uh, throughout. It's very common. And, And John here is mentioning this to Gaius when he says, to do well to the brethren, those you know to be brothers in Christ, but also to strangers. In other words, those who you don't know but are commended unto you or recommended by those who you do know and that are following after Christ and faithful. He says, receive and do well to them as well, also as you would the brethren uh, that you do know. And then he says, which, verse 6, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Verses 7 and 8, because that for his name's sake they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles, we therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. This is the thesis statement of the entire epistle right here in verse, uh, verse 8, when he says that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. These verses address the predominant theme or purpose of John's third epistle, as declared in the statement, be fellow helpers to the truth. As Gaius, as we have discovered already, we should be faithful as fellow helpers to the truth, and we are to receive and minister to others for the sake of the gospel. And it's interesting here because we, we are very prone, especially in our culture and society and such, to uh, put great emphasis on, on personality or to be willing to help people because we like them or because you know we have things in common with them. But notice John's statement here. He says that we are to do well to all others, showing this charity and this love, helping others along the way, assisting them in their fellowship with the Lord and the gospel. That's what he's talking about. And then he says be that, that we would continue to be fellow helpers to the truth. And what's interesting in that statement, again, as we pointed out last week, is that John is not merely saying, oh, uh, you know, to, to be a fellow helper to to Titus, be a fellow helper to Timothy, be a fellow helper, or John is not saying that, or even to Paul or what have you. No, John is saying be a fellow helper to the truth. This doesn't matter about who it is. It's, a, it's whether or not they're proclaiming the truth or not, whether they are walking in the truth. And so he makes that distinction in this passage. Now, in contrast to the truth of being a fellow helper to the truth, as John declared in the previous verses, within verses 9 and 10, John provides an example, which we've read this evening, and a warning concerning those who not only refrain from committing to be a helper to the truth, but also act contrary to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's read verses 9 and 10 again. I wrote unto the church 
But Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Now, these two verses may seem pretty straightforward and simple, but there is actually literally much that is stated in these two verses that require our attention. In verse 9, we begin the first part of the verse, I wrote unto the church. This statement alone is significant for many reasons. Whatever the content of this letter to which John refers in this verse, obviously it must have been lost. We know that John wrote a general epistle, which I mentioned a moment ago in 1 John. He wrote to the elect lady uh, in in 2 John, which could be a church specifically or a particular person, individual. We're, We're not certain about that. There's no definitive answer for that. And then... Third, John, of course, is to an individual, Gaius specifically, who is named. And so John speaks of writing unto the church, and yet Diotrephes did not receive him and would not receive the letter as well in reality. And so the fact that there was a letter written by John, which is now lost apparently, could possibly create a dilemma uh, for some people, for some believers even. For those who believe that men were inspired... This creates a problem in that something written by a man who was inspired by God is now lost. Yet if we possess a proper and biblical understanding of how the Lord provided his word to man, then this is not a problem at all. The fact that this writing of John is lost simply means, if it is a lost letter that we don't have in 1st or 3rd or 2nd John, if that is the case, then it simply means that its exclusion from the canon of Scripture is evidence that it was not inspired by God as holy writ. Now, here's what I'm saying to you. You must remember, and this is confused by many, or conflated, that people think that God inspired men. That's not what the Scriptures teach us. The Scriptures teach us that the Scriptures themselves are inspired, God-breathed. So God never was inspiring men. He was inspiring, breathing out his word through man, using men. But what we must recognize, even as Paul's epistle, you know, we call 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, but even in his letter, in one one of the two letters there, he references a letter which he had already written, which is not found anywhere, unless in 1 Corinthians he references a letter which he had written, and then you see what some believe to be part of that letter in 2 Corinthians, which very well could be, but we don't even know that for, to be absolutely certain. And so apparently there was a letter or a portion of a letter that Paul wrote as well that is not found in Scripture, unless it is completely found in 2 Corinthians, which is a possibility. But the point being that if we put our, our eyes upon men, and I told you a moment ago that we have this, this problem today as well where men are drawn to personalities and they, uh, they exalt pastors, they exalt teachers, they magnify them, they glorify them, they think much too highly of them, and the people many times who are receiving that love it too much. And that's exactly what John is dealing with here with Diotrephes. In fact, as we get into this text, you'll see that Diotrephes did what? He loved to have the preeminence among them. Do you know what that means? That means he wanted to be first among them. Now, one of the main issues with that, of course, is that place belongs to Christ alone, to no man. So no man has the right to desire the preeminence. No man has the right to take headship. The church does not belong to any man. The church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Christ paid the price for the church. Christ redeemed his church. The Father sacrificed the Son on behalf of the church to redeem the church unto his glory. And no man can claim the preeminence within the church. And that happens much too often today. And it's not even recognized that it's happening. It's just overlooked or not realized. Or men are even prompting it to be done. Or with either those within the, within the congregation or the pastors or teachers themselves, what have you. And so... When we understand that it's not that, that men were inspired, but Scripture was, then this doesn't even present a problem. In 2 Timothy, th- 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul wrote, as you, I referenced a moment ago, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that so that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So when the Scripture says here that all Scripture is given by inspiration, the word inspiration here literally means God-breathed. And again, if you want to understand this better, if you speak any words whatsoever and put your hand in front of your mouth, you will not speak out words unless you are breathing out while you are speaking. God literally was expressing His truth, voicing His truth. He breathed out. The Holy Spirit did this work, of course, and it's in, therefore Scripture is inspired by God. So Paul further explained that Scripture is God-breathed, inspired, but then he gave the reason for this. So that God's men, the man of God, might be qualified and made to be completely adequate for all good or godly work. Now, remember something. When you, as I've said this even last night, and I've said this to you many times, on the word good, the adjective good in Scripture, you might as well begin to equate that with godly. Because there's nothing good that comes from men. We don't produce good. We are not good. Scripture speaks totally against that, that thought, or that false belief. And so if we are not good, and Scripture yet speaks of good works, and speaks of that which God has, good works which God has before ordained, and we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. When it speaks of good in that sense, it's not talking about something man does. It's talking about that which God does, which therefore it's really godly. So you're talking about godly works. You're talking about godly things. You're not talking about things which man produces. And so even if these letter or this letter is, is lost, this writing, written by the apostles or those who used by, were used by God to write the Scriptures, this does not mean that the Scriptures are incomplete at all, but rather that those writings were never actually a part of Scripture. In other words... And this is what you must remember. It's not that the writers, it's not the writers that made the writing holy writ, but it's the Spirit of God which breathed Scripture into existence. And so, no matter what the men wrote, meaning like if Paul wrote multiple letters that aren't in Scripture, it doesn't matter. Because just because Paul wrote a letter, he himself was not inspired. It's God's Word that is inspired. It is God's truth that has been breathed to us. And so, and recorded and translated and so on and so forth. Look at verse 9, continuing. So Paul, or John says, I, I wrote unto the church, but, here's a contrast, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, among who? Among the church, receiveth us not. Now, the verb preeminence means that he wished to be first or desired to be first. And and for one to desire preeminence, as I mentioned to a moment ago, this is very important for you to recognize. For one, and understand, for one to desire preeminence is for one to attempt to exalt oneself in the place of Christ. And that is a serious transgression. That is a serious sin. 
And especially when you think about the church, who is the head of the church? Christ is the head of the church. He's the Savior of the body. And for Diotrephes to say, I want to have the preeminence, what he's literally saying is, I want to take the place of Christ within the church or among the church. Now, did Diotrephes literally state that? No, but that's what's in his heart. Because he is saying, I, John is testifying of him, and we'll get to that in a moment, but John is testifying of Diotrephes, saying that Diotrephes, even though he wrote to the church, that Diotrephes loved having the preeminence among the brethren. He, he wanted this. He desired this. He wanted, he did not want to lose his place among the brethren. He did not want to have anyone come in and, and challenge what he was saying. He didn't have, want to have anyone come in and cause the people to even begin to think on their own or go to the scriptures to study what they say. Think about Paul for a moment. If you remember, the one thing we know about the Brian specifically in scripture is what? And who was preaching? Paul was preaching. And when Paul the apostle to the Gentiles was preaching, the Bereans said, well, that sounds good, Paul, but let us go back and check the Scriptures to see if what you're saying is so. Now, when we speak about the Scriptures, what are we talking about? The Old Testament. Why? Because Paul is writing the New Testament, or other disciples and apostles as well, they're writing the Scripture. So when any time, again, when you go through the New Testament, and you know this already, when it says, as it is written, or the Scripture saith, or so on and so forth, it is important that you go back to find out where that is and the context of what is being stated, because the truth is, all of that of the old is a shadow of the new. And as it's been said in hermeneutics, you've heard this, I'm sure, before, but the old is the the Old Testament, or old the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so, when you see Paul or Jesus or anyone else saying, "As this, as as uh, it is written," or as Isaiah has said, or Hosea, O.C., or what have you, anytime you find terminology like that, it is imperative that we go to find out what is being stated, because. What is being expounded on in the New Testament is revealing the truth of the Old Testament in its genuine fullness while they only understood partly that truth in the Old Testament. And so when we see uh, the Bereans, as I mentioned a moment ago, Paul is preaching, they go to the Scriptures. And Paul does not rebuke them for that. Paul does not correct them for that. Paul does not, not, he does not get... Uh, have his feelings hurt for that because they go to the scriptures. Let me say this to you, and this has everything to do with thinking about Diotrephes. Whether Diotrephes was a bishop or not in the church, he had some prominence, obviously, and, and at least would have been someone who had, had responsibility to teach to some degree. Whether or not he was actually the elder in the church or not, I don't, I don't know. But yet we know that he obviously loving to have the preeminence, and if he had the ability to obviously... Removed from the church, people who came in with truth, then he had some prominence among that body. Whatever that prominence was, we're not certain. But I've said to you many times, it is my responsibility as a pastor to know the message of Scripture, to know the message of Christ, and then to declare the message of Christ as God has provided it to you. But it is your responsibility to know whether or not I'm doing that. So it is your responsibility to know the truth and your responsibility to compare and study and examine everything according to the Scriptures. 
And then that obviously obligates me to stay in the Scriptures, not to wander about and stray. And then it's easy for you to go to the Scriptures and compare the truth of what is being stated to the truth that is written. And so we see here that Diotrephes wanted to be first. He desired to be first. Colossians 1, 18 and 19, Paul wrote, speaking of Jesus, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, that he might be first. That's what Paul is saying. For it, is, for it pleased the Father that in him, in Christ, in Jesus, should all fullness dwell. The contrast made in 3 John verse 9 can extend beyond the fact that John wrote to the church and Diotrephes rejected his letter. We need to understand that. Because he says, I wrote into the church, but Diotrephes. Now we know that's a contrastive conjunction, which is being used to show contrast between the previous statement and that which follows. So I wrote into the church, however, but Diotrephes did this. He did not receive us. But I believe that this contrast can truly extend beyond those two statements alone. In other words, this contrast can also carry over to the significance of the distinction made between the character and testimony of Gaius and Diotrephes, if we would compare them. Because remember, these are like twin epistles, if you will. So let's look at the testimony of Gaius again um, here in 3 John and, and, and see what's being stated. Then we'll compare also, remember that of which was being stated in 2 in second John as well. But in, in third John, the testimony of Gaius, we find in verses 2 and 3. And let me, before we read it, let me make this statement to you. This is not what Gaius declares about himself, and that's important for you to remember. I, I alluded to this a moment ago, and we've already dealt with this last week in some, to some extent or the week before, but this is in relation to what others have, have, have observed about Gaius. So this isn't Gaius standing before the church saying, well, you know, I've exhibited great charity to other believers and I've really been a fellow helper to the truth and I just want to thank God that he gave me the opportunity to do that. No, Gaius isn't proclaiming any of this. This is Gaius's life and he is submitted to God and God is using him as a fellow helper to the truth. And now John, the beloved disciple, John, the apostle, is now saying about Gaius that the testimony, Gaius, that you've had from within the church, among the church, is this of you. Look at verses 2 and 3 and then 5 and 6. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I said to you, let me stop here for a moment because this is so important. What a testimony to be declared in verse 3. First of all, in verse 2, John says, I desire that you prosper physically and in health as you have prospered spiritually. Remember, this is not John's desire for Gaius to be in prosperity and wealth for the sake of self-consumption. This is John saying, as you have spiritually prospered, so I desire you physically prosper because I know that you have an eternal perspective and worldview which will turn whatever blessing and health and any prosperity at all that you would receive of God, any any." overabundance or overflow that God may give unto you, anything above and beyond what is necessary for your life, I know by your spiritual condition that that's going to continue to be used for the sake of fellow helper, being a fellow helper to the, to the truth or to the gospel. And so nothing to do with prosperity and wealth as people would think. And it's funny, isn't it? Because you have to even say this. It's a shame that I would even have to say this. I've, I've dealt with this prior, but that we need to be aware that uh, while most people would read this, they're going, oh, see, oh, John's prayer for Gaius is that he just wants him to prosper. And that means succeed is what it literally means. But I want, we want, he wants him to prosper and he wants him to, to be in good health. But then there is a basis upon which that statement is made. As thy soul prospereth, 
So he's saying, as you have spiritually prospered, so we desire that you physically prosper as well for the sake of the continuance of being a fellow helper to the gospel or to the truth. So this is the point that's being made. Verses 5 and 6, Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. So he's saying, do good to all men, and he says, this is your testimony. Now notice what John says about Gaius. He said, first of all, his soul prospered. He said, truth abided, was abiding in Gaius. He said, Gaius was abiding in truth. Notice again, verse uh, 3, I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. What greater testimony could there possibly be? Here's what John is saying. The truth is in you, and because the truth is in you, you are in the truth. And this is the greatest testimony. And this isn't Gaius standing up saying this. This is John observing this about Gaius. The truth is in you, Gaius, and it's evident by your walking in the truth. So he, his soul prospered. Truth was abiding in Gaius. Gaius was abiding in truth. The church testified of Gaius' demonstration of charity or godly love. And the church testified of Gaius' commitment to further the truth. Now compare that. I wrote it to the church, but Diotrephes. Consider what John just said about Gaius in the previous verses. This is the same epistle, same letter. And now look what he says about Diotrephes. And as in the case of Gaius, this testimony of Diotrephes is what others observed about him. This is not what Diotrephes is confessing or admitting to himself. Verses 9 and 10 again. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth, pratting against us with malicious words, and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. So look at the testimony of, of Diotrephes. John testified that Diotrephes, first of all, desired to be preeminent within the church. Second, John testified that Diotrephes rejected him, John, and his epistle, although John was an apostle. Let's not forget that. Third, John testified that Diotrephes spoke evil against John. Fourth, John testified that Diotrephes rejected others who spoke truth. And fifth, John testified that Diotrephes cast brethren out of the church, and he did this that he might maintain his status within the church. The reason he was so willing to attempt to attack the others in the church who would receive John or receive others who spoke truth was because he was fearful that truth would prevail and expose him for what he was and where he was. I've said too many times, I'll say it again, we dealt with this again last night, that we do not need to live in an echo chamber. We need to be challenged on what we claim we believe. We need to be challenged. And that does not mean we go listen to heresy or follow after false teachers, but it means that we do not need to live in a circle or in an echo chamber, in a community in which everyone just agrees with everything that we think and everything that we say. And as soon as someone else comes in and says anything differently, I'm not talking about fundamental truths of the faith or tenets of the faith. I'm talking about areas that are gray, areas that maybe we've never thought of, areas that are beyond the scope of of our, our previous thoughts whatsoever. We ought to be receptive to hear and compare to the Scriptures. The Bereans, when they heard Paul teach and preach, they said, we've got to go back to the Old Testament and make certain that this man is actually explaining to us the truth of the Old Testament as he is preaching. They didn't just shut Paul out and say, oh, no, we don't believe that. No, they said, okay, let's compare this to the Scripture. But might I say to you, if a man builds his own kingdom, as was Diotrephes, 
If a man is desiring to take preeminence, if a man is desiring to take the place of Christ, the headship of Christ in the church, then he feels threatened all the time by anyone or anything that opposes him or what he has said. And I say to you, may truth prevail. May truth prevail. Remember, as we saw in 1 John, in the testament or in his letter, uh, epistle concerning the test of truth or the truth test, that one of the things that, that really stand out is we need to recognize that for one to, to truly, one may claim to love the truth, but the difference between those who claim to love truth and those who truly love truth is that those who love truth genuinely have a desire for truth to continue to transform them, not just gain knowledge of more information. So if you claim to love truth, and yet you have no desire for truth to conform you to the image of Christ, you don't love truth at all. But if you genuinely love truth, then you're going to desire that truth continually change you. And when confronted with truth, and with opposition, it is important that we stop and we are either able to expose the error that is being declared, or either, if we are in error, we conform to that truth. And we humbly submit to the truth. By the way, again, John doesn't say, oh, I want you to help Paul, I want you to help this guy, I want you to help this guy. No, that you might continue to be fellow helpers to the truth. Because truth is paramount. And so John is expressing that here. What a vast difference between the testimony of Gaius compared to that of Diotrephes that we just examined. And, and the question is, do we love truth? Does truth abide in us? Do we abide in the truth? And are we committed to further the truth? The verb receiveth, when John wrote, receiveth us not in verse 9, it means acknowledge. Now this is important too, and here's why. The importance of John's statement that Diotrephes did not receive him is more than a rejection of John as a person, this also means that Diotrephes did not acknowledge the apostleship of John. He did not acknowledge John to be John as he is, as one who God had called out, who God had used in writing the Scriptures, who God had used as a disciple and beloved apostle and disciple of Jesus Christ. For had Diotrephes acknowledged the apostleship of John, he would have received John and his writing. When one rejects another who declares the truth, he places himself in a dangerous position of a high probability of rejecting the truth that has been declared. Inversely, for one to receive one who is declaring heresy and error is to potentially receive the heresy that is proclaimed. It was for this reason John declared in 2 John. I told you we'd go back here. Let's look at 2 John for a moment, verses 10 and 11. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. Now look, John is saying Diotrephes did not acknowledge my apostleship. He refused to receive the letters to the church. He would not acknowledge that this was of God and that this was truth. And he goes on to expound on that even further. But then he says to in a second epistle, that if one come and preach or teach any other form of doctrine, anything other than Jesus Christ as he has been declared unto you, then let him be accursed. And he says, do not receive him into your house. Do not 
It doesn't mean you're nasty and hateful. It means that we speak truth and stand on truth, and we do not act like these people are our friends or they are of of the brotherhood or that they are of the family of God or they are disciples of Christ. No, we see it for what it is, and we do not partake in their wickedness of proclaiming a false gospel or proclaiming another gospel, a perversion of the gospel, as Paul says in Galatians. And so if this is true in 2 John, then this is also true in 3 John in this respect, that while in 2 John, John is warning against this elect lady and her children, whether it be the church and those of the church, or whether it be an individual, specific individual, and her children literally. Again, we don't know for certain, but either way, it's really irrelevant. The point John is making is that you need to be on guard and be aware that you don't receive into your house in some false form of fellowship Someone who is against Christ, as though you are in fellowship with them. And if you don't wish them Godspeed, do not bless them on their journey, for in doing so, you become a partaker in their error and their heretical teaching. But here in 3 John, John is saying, while there are those, the warning is provided in 2 John to not receive people who are teaching error, here you have Diotrephes who's rejecting truth. It's not he's receiving error as the warning in 2 John. It's that he is rejecting the truth, the letter that is written by the apostle. He will not receive the apostle himself. And then he even goes on further to say in verse 10, Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, pratting against us with malicious words and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren and forbiddeth them that would and casteth them out of the church. Do you see what he's saying here? The verb pratting, it, it means to disparage. And according to one definition provided in Webster's 1828 Dictionary, to disparage is to treat with contempt, to undervalue, to vilify. And the adjective malicious, it means evil and wicked. So John is saying that Diotrephes not only refused to acknowledge him as an apostle and receive the letter he has written in rejecting his letter, but Diotrephes also treated him with contempt, acting against him in an evil manner and malicious manner and spoke evilly against him as well, no doubt. Yet even this was not enough for Diotrephes, he goes on to say. Notice, this is very interesting. Back to verse 10. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth, praying against us with malicious words, and not content therewith. So in other words, he's saying, not only is he not found contentment in rejecting my epistle, in not acknowledging my apostleship, in rejecting me, and, 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 and declaring truth to the church, he says that's not enough for him. He's not even content with that. But, he goes on to say, he's not satisfied with this, with his open rejection of the apostleship of John and the truth which John declared, but also was intent to make certain that he remain preeminent in the church at all cost. Even casting out of the church those who would receive John or other of the brethren who declared truth. Again, he says, verse 10, the latter part, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Look how wicked this is. Diotrephes is saying, I love the preeminent. 